My name's Dave Jones. Uh, I know some of you, and, and many of you are new faces to me. I used to come here, then went to Manhattan, then disappeared, uh, been traveling. But, um, you know, I left the marketplace a number of years ago. I was a partner at KPMG, went into full-time ministry, uh, and uh, for a number of years led the Bowery Mission. And one of the things that the Bowery Mission that I did was I was very focused on growing the kingdom's impact with people experiencing poverty. And I thought I was really doing something. I mean, we were growing, you know, we had, you know, we had a few hundred men and we we're trying to grow it to a few hundred more, which is important because every person matters, right? But then I went to DC to meet a, a guy who, who a friend told me I ought to meet. And I was talking to a gentleman who says, yes, we, we've introduced a, a million and a half people to Jesus Christ. And we've, um, and we've helped them out of ultra-poverty, um, where they're making less than 50 cents a day. And, and we measured it, the impact. And, and it was all about data. I'm going, wow. I'm going, this is amazing. And I was, I was pretty excited. Somebody after my own heart. Now, he'd spent time in the marketplace as well. He was, uh, he was the chief uh, financial officer of Morgan Stanley Asia, uh, one of the top uh, three people in the C-suite overseeing all of Morgan Stanley's uh, $6 billion operation. Uh, and he stepped out of that marketplace role in order to lead a ministry uh, that's having uh, major impact. And so I came alongside and have the, the joy of working with uh, David Sutherland. David? Good morning. Good morning. Great to uh, be here. Am I echoing? Am I okay? All right. Good, 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 good. Good. It's, uh, thanks very much, Dave. I, uh, at ICM, we've got 600 full-time employees. We've got a lot of really capable people, but... Uh, you know, a few years ago when Dave Jones uh, joined us, it was, uh, it was fantastic to get somebody with as much experience and depth as, as he has. So uh, it's been a real game changer for me. So uh, well, I'm grateful for his investment in my life here. Listen, uh, let me uh, just jump right into it. I'm not a theologian. I uh, don't really have, uh, it's not that deep, but here's what I can do. I can give you just a little of a story of how God used my life and a few of the scriptures he used in order to guide me. So um, I, uh, in my early life, uh, I grew up in northern Maine. The way you get to my house is you get on 95, you go north, and we lived in the last house on the left. It's completely, completely accurate instructions, all right? And, uh, and, uh, but I, you know, had a real rich spiritual heritage, uh, we, but that's kind of where we started, and then we moved around, and I never lived anywhere more than two years when I was growing up, so I went to 13 different schools in 12 years, um, but, um, I am like a little, not really a regular guy. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, just starting high school, got involved in competitive academic debate. My brother is one year younger than I am, and the two of us were a debate team, and we started debating all around at that time. We were in Texas, and then we moved back up to Maine and finished up there, and, and we were probably spending 40 hours a week on debate. and. Um, and uh, you know, just doing some schoolwork, and other than that, we were we were running around. So we were we were uh, kind of you know make, doing well, and then we went off to university, and then things got really out of control. We were spending about a hundred hours a week on debate. That's what we were doing. Just a little bit of classwork, and aside from that, that's that's all we did. And um, in uh, and our freshman year, we came in second place in the country for freshmen, and then sophomore year was okay. Junior year, we ended up third place in America, and so then we were kind of coming up on our senior year, the whole idea was, you know, we've been chasing this dream to kind of be national champions. That's what we want to do. And so, but then at the end of my junior year, um, I was going to the University of Louisville and, um, and it was 25,000 people. And there was really, there was no campus crusade. There was no navigators. There was, uh, 
uh, a lot of the other ministries were not. The only real ministry that was there was InterVarsity, and it was really struggling a little bit. And so all during our time, the IV guy kept coming over to my brother and I say, I need you to help me. And we said, buddy, we're busy. You know, we can go to a few of your Bible studies here and there, but, you know, we're really occupied. And so he asked me to do things hundred times because he was tenacious and uh, I said no most of those times but then at my the end of my junior year he asked me to go to a one-week summer camp in the upper peninsula of Michigan and it was after debate season and I just had didn't I didn't want to go but I didn't have any good reason why I couldn't go so I went and God really worked in my heart when I got up there and I remember him I felt like God was kind of whispering in my ear he said what if you, in your senior year, you didn't invest in debate as much and you said ministry would be your, your first priority? And what if you did, because you did that, it changed the eternal trajectory of just one person? Would that be a fair deal? Would that be worth it? And I remember sitting there thinking to God, that is such an unfair question. Because, of course, it would be worth it. But here's the thing. I've been spending the last six years of my life for this one thing. I've got nine months left in my debate career. There's no professional, like, you're done at the end. i got nine months. i gotta, I got to kind of see this thing through. And it just felt like God was saying, no, that's not. I want you to put me first. And I felt that God was asking me to put down the most important thing in my life and put it for it. And I, uh, and I uh, shed a few tears, not a real emotional guy, but I felt like that's what God was letting me, uh, asking me to do. And uh, fortunately, my brother came to a similar conclusion. So in our senior year of college, instead of you know, tripling down for the big year, we ended up spending, I don't know, let's call it 40, uh, 40 hours a week on InterVarsity, maybe 60 hours a week on debate. I mean, we're still on scholarships, so we still did it, but um, didn't quite have as much tenacity. So instead of kind of during the regular season, we did well, but not as good. We finished about fifth place in the country during the regular season. But then the championship, just like the NCAA tournament, it's a single elimination. It's all determined at the end of the year. And so you go in, and we went to Florida State for that, and, um, and you start with 110 teams, and after two days they've narrowed it down to 16 and then the last day it's single elimination and so we got to the uh the, in the round of 16 we were debating against Baylor and it was very close and uh there were seven judges and four of them voted for us and three of them for the other guys and then we uh, got to the quarterfinal rounds and it was again very close we were losing halfway through I leaned over to my brother and said we're gonna have to do something really crazy and we did that and uh and and we won it was one of my great moments of debate here at any rate but then we won and then we got into the semifinal round. We were, go we were with Dartmouth, and it was very, very close. There were five judges, and three voted for us and two for them, so we were into the finals. And we were against Redlands, which is the same team we had lost to in our freshman year. And, uh, and the, normally at the end of a debate, the, uh, the judges um, you know, take 15 minutes, and then they vote, and then they announce. But here the judges took two hours. And uh, and then they found, and the tournament director normally just announces who won the debate, but this time the guy decides to add a little extra dra drama. So he opens one ballot for them and one for us and one for them, one for us. He holds up the last ballot. This is the one that's going to decide. And he opens it up, and it is for us. And we had won the national championship. And uh, when that happened. Um, I have to tell you that day was very, very busy. I started the day with 16 teams and we, you know, didn't, there was no good reason to believe necessarily we we're going to win and, and it just was just frenetic, right? So, and by the time this all happened, I felt like just, you know, in the, in the bedlam, I felt like God whispered to me, if you will put me first in your life, I will take care of you. 
And I felt like I kind of almost automatically whispered back, next time you ask me to do something, it won't be necessary for you to make me win at the end. I'm not, you know, doing something where I say, you know, if I do for you, you're going to, it's not a game, right? You've proven to me that you will, you can take care of me and I will follow you, whatever you, wherever you ask me to do. Now, at the time, I actually thought that that would be the most important moment in my life. I thought that when I get to be 85 and I go into my grave, people say, yeah, he was the national champion. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. And um, I remember I joined a law firm a few years later and, you know, I was a fifth year and, and I had a partner who was giving me an especially hard time and it was late at night on a Friday night. And I remember thinking to myself, doesn't that guy know I was the national champion? <laughs> And then it occurred to me, which probably occurred to you very quickly, is he didn't care a lick what I'd done with my extracurricular time when I was in college. It didn't matter. And so that whole thing kind of went into my, uh, to the ether. And then it was, it was just a few years ago, I'd, I was going to tell this story and I was going to use a PowerPoint and I got on the internet to try to find evidence that I'd actually won the national championship. And, you know, everything's on the internet, right? And it took me a while and eventually I found that there is one enterprising soul who has created a Wikipedia page, which is a long list of all the national champions. And when I got it, I was relieved to find my name there under 20, uh, 1982. But as far as I could tell, that is the only evidence on the entire internet that this event happened. So it is. Uh, it is. It didn't prove to be the most important moment of my life. But what here's what it did do. I think that many people, um, we run our whole lives for the with a uh, a passion for success. Right. We get out of college, and then we need to prove that we can actually do it. And if you're a recording artist, you want to you know cut the big song. And if you're a lawyer, you want to make partner. And if you're a you know, whatever your, whatever field it is, you want to make, and it, some of it is you want to prove to yourself. Some of it is you want to prove to your father. Some of it you want your friends to know that you're really important. But, you know, whether we say it or not, we actually strive very much for success. And then, uh, and then you know, we get to be 50, and then you get to be to, to that point in life where either you've accomplished your goal or you got close enough where you could smell it and you've no other people that did it. And then you come a point and you say, why did I not see my children grow up? Uh, was this all really worth it? And that's when people uh, transition from a passion for success to a passion for significance. And then it's 50, 55, sometimes 60 that people say, uh, you know, I've, I, I, I got to add this on to my portfolio. I want to give back, right? And so, and I think that's kind of common. You guys have seen the halftime stuff, all that sort of thing. Here's what God did to me. And when I was a very young 22, I, I was able to accomplish something that was very important to me. And so when I was 24, 25, I don't feel that I was stretching for that passion for success I still wanted to be successful, but it's not like I felt like I had anything to prove because I think just psychologically, God had given me a little bit of calmness to say I'd already accomplished something. So what it allowed me to do was to focus on significance at a much earlier age than many other people. And I don't, I, I don't, didn't understand what was happening at the time. That's just my reflection on, on, on kind of what's happened uh, in the past. So just to kind of continue my story a little bit, just a few weeks later, I got married, um, and then uh, I became an accountant specializing in international taxation. I was at Arthur Anderson, then I went to law school, and uh, and uh, then Deanna and I attended Urbana, which is a big missions conference, 18,000 students, and they're all trying to tell you, you know, you should go overseas, and uh, they talked about tent making, having a secular job, going overseas, and using your time to try to give back. First time I'd ever heard that. 
my wife and I both really felt that God was kind of touching our hearts because I have, was involved in the international taxation. It was one of those few areas as a lawyer you could actually practice overseas. So um, Deanna ended up um, getting her master's degree in linguistics so that we could live our lives overseas. And, um, and uh, we then in 19, decided, and then we did a little checking, we decided that actually Asia was the place for us because at the time, um, Part of my debate experience as well is I had kind of debated through the years about all the great social ills of the world, and I came to the conviction that evangelism, of course, is something that I felt very convicted that I wanted to be involved in. But you can do that in a lot of contexts. You can do prisons. You can do business people. You can do all the contexts. So which context would you do evangelism? For me, global poverty is the thing that haunts me more than anything. It afflicts billions of people in our world. I don't think there is any issue that affects our world that is as serious and as widespread as that. That was my conviction. And so looking for a way that we could be involved in poverty over a long time, we decided that Asia was the place. At the time, this is uh, you know in the 80s, 90s, about 80% of the poor people in the world lived within a five-hour airplane ride of Hong Kong. You had of China, India, and... Uh, Bangladesh and uh, you know and and and, and uh, Burma and uh, you know add them all together. It's eighty percent of the world lived there, so that's where we felt like God was calling us to live. So uh, we kind of made that commitment to live in Asia, but neither one of us had ever been there. So when we graduated from graduate school, we went in 1987 for a look-see trip over to Asia. We spent some time working in a refugee camp in uh, a Vietnamese refugee camp in Hong Kong. Then we went up to to um, to uh, Beijing, taught in law school there for a couple of months, and uh, and really came convinced. Uh, even more that Hong Kong was the place for us. Then we decided to come back to the States and just get a little uh, a little experience. So I moved to DC and um, and uh, worked for some Wall Street law firms there. And then uh, and then uh, worked for the Clinton administration for a couple of years. And I was I was the U.S. I was the United States government's representative to Asian countries, and I negotiated tax treaties with them. So that was a great experience. And then in 1997, uh, my uh, phone rang, and uh, it was Morgan Stanley. And they said that we've got some opportunities here. And I didn't really know that much about investment banking at the time. And I just looked at this phone. I thought, oh, these are the guys that think they're the masters of the universe. You know, they make you work 18-hour days. They yell at you three times every day. And they think that you have to put up with that crap because they, you know, they, they pay you enough. And I just thought, that is not who I am. And I said something like, if hell freezes over, I'll let you know. And... Um, and there was a pause because Morgan Stanley doesn't usually get that reaction, right? <laughs> and then he said, well, you know, we have opportunities in Asia, and we'd heard you were interested in Asia. And I thought, oh, buddy, you should have started with that because I'm not really interested in your company. I'm not even interested in your industry, but I am interested in your geography. So I kind of figured that I would go over to Hong Kong. I would take this role and run tax in Asia and then give me a year and a half or two years, and I'd get a job with a real company that makes real stuff, and then, uh, and then I would kind of move over there. But that's kind of not not um, how things worked uh, for us. Um, I, uh, I ended up really loving the Morgan Stanley role and really respecting what it did. But um, as we kind of, um, I jumped ahead real quick. Um, when we were still in the States, we did start a church in our living room and uh, in Southern Maryland. And that church eventually grew to 1,400 people. So during that decade, I got a lot of interesting ministry experience so during the growth of that. And during that time, um, we, uh, I heard a sermon from uh, a guy, and it really helped to, get, to guide my future. And I just thought I would briefly share a couple of moments from that. Uh, he, the sermon was based around Luke 15. And um, during that, Christ is speaking to tax collectors. And I was working for the government at the time as a tax collector, so it, you know, it sort of rang true to me. But in this... Uh, 
that time, you know, Christ, uh, Christ was, was sort of speaking to these people that, that were uh, more on the out and they were not as popular. And, uh, and the religious leaders were standing around and sort of whispering, like, why is he measure, you know, interacting with these people that are, um, you know, subhuman, shouldn't deal with those guys. And, and it appears from the, from the text that, that Christ, he'd been kind of in ministry for three years. He'd been talking to these religious leaders for all this time. And it's just like they didn't get it. And he had had about enough of that. And he said, let me tell you a parable. And, he, and every other place in scripture, when he tells a parable, he tells one. This time he gives three parables straight ahead, rapid fire, all with kind of the same message. The only place you would see that. And so you, I'm sure you've heard all these before. The first story, a quick recap of the first story is the story of the lost sheep. You get um, shepherd has 100 sheep in the middle of the night. One of them gets away. The shepherd searches for a lost sheep until it's found. All right, that's the first one. The second one, he's, uh, there's the, the parable of the lost coin. Woman has a coin of great value, and uh, then she's, it's lost, and she searches through a whole house until she finds it. And then the third one is the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. And in that, uh, you know, it's basically a man's son demands that the father gives him all of his inheritance right up front. And, uh, but then uh, and the father does that. I don't know why he does it. But at any rate, the son takes it. He uh, squanders it all away in wild living. And uh, finally, the son is facing misery and he returns back to his father as a broken man. And, and in that circumstance, it would have been understandable for the father to have had about enough of his son. But, uh, but instead, the father is overcome with love for his son and he celebrates his return. All right. Those are the three stories that he tells. So what kind of lessons could we, and they're kind of quite similar. So what lessons, and here's the three lessons that, that, this, uh, that this guy was explaining, and it really rang true for me. First of all, in all three of the items, uh, in all three of the stories, the lost item has great value. So, um, for example, in the lost sheep, the passage says that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the recovery of the one that was lost than over the 99 who remained. Now, why do you think God said that? Why did he say that the one was more important than the 99? Now, for me, you know, I'm a little bit of an accountant. And if, I, if this had happened to me and one goes away, uh, I would have handled it a little bit differently. First thing would be to say, how did, you how did this happen? You know, there's a hole in the fence. You're going to have to figure there. The, the shepherd's assistant went, uh, you know, went sleep. Let's fire him and get a guy here who knows what he's going to do. You know, let's let's make sure that we've caught this all taken care of. Once we get this taken care of and this 99 are no longer dangerous, then we can go find the one. But by the time you do that, probably the one is lost. But that would just be shrinkage. Right. I mean, you just would sort of lose that. Um, but, you know, for God, it seems that that was, not the, that was not the approach, that there is no person that is expendable. There is no one, that uh, every person is important. So that's maybe the first lesson that you can learn is that lost items have great value. The second one is that uh, lost items, they justify an all-out search. So in the story of the lost coin, the, 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 the woman was kind of moving everything around and she went to find it. And it feels to me that, that um, so many of us in our own lives, we feel that uh, we have our own problems and we're not capable of helping others. We've got, uh, we got to feel that right now I got to get my own struggles behind me and, and then I'm going to able to really help other people in our lives. But do you know how many times I've heard people say that and how many times do you actually ever get to the other side and say, I'm actually, okay, now everything's okay. Now I can go help. You know, it is at time after time after time after time. And, and our, our lives are never truly fixed. And so for many people, that day of when they're able to help others is constantly being pushed back to another time. So it's going to be next week. It's going to be next month. It's going to be next year. But God seems to be telling us, don't wait for that. 
He wants us to reach out of our comfort zone and help others even when we have plenty of problems of our own. The third lesson I think you can learn from this is finding lost items is a cause for great celebration. In the story of the lost sheep, there's only four verses long, and three of the verses are about the celebration. In the story of the lost coin, it's only three verses long, and two of the verses are about the celebration. In the, in the lost son, it's a long description of the party. They cut, you know, killed the fatted calf, that sort of thing. So Liz, you know, I just want to say, how does that affect us? And I think what we can reflect on is that God, and we can tell our friends, that God loves you and God loves us, and uh, that he sent a search party out to search for us when we were lost. And uh, that search party was led by the Holy Spirit himself. And, uh, and I don't know how many of you can, uh, can point to a particular moment in your history, in your life, when you made that decision to kind of move from darkness to light, to join God's family. For me, it was, I was a kid and I was at a Bible camp and I, you know, I, I know that particular moment. There's others that, that it's a little bit more of a progression, but I think that for, uh, Whenever that happened in your life, I think we should recognize that when that happened, there was a celebration in heaven. And when that celebration happened, that, uh, that there was a big banquet party, and, uh, and it was led by Jesus Christ himself. And, uh, and there was a banner behind it, and the banner had your name on it when that happened. And when you think about that, you think that, that, that what is God teaching us? If all of the proceedings of heaven will come to a stop because of one person, then you must matter to God. It seems to me there are so many people in our world that, uh, that we couldn't find our own way. So, um, and and they, um, so many people are feeling alone. You know, you can have a lot of friends, but you really don't feel like those, there's those people that will really have your back. And, uh, and you know, that's true for um, people that are married. Sometimes you don't feel like your spouse has your back. Your kids are betraying you. You know, there is just a lot of people. There's so many people in our world that feel alone in, uh, in their lives. And, uh, but you're not alone because God cares for you and he loves you. And there's nothing in this world that is more important than that. So those are the three lessons that I kind of learned. And that really helped to shape the trajectory of my life. And so um, as I kind of then transitioned over to Asia, we, uh, uh, we um, in, uh, uh, the, for me, we got over to Asia. The real priority for us was evangelism. Um, when we got over there, uh, we looked for, we kind of went over there to be involved in ministry, but we didn't have any particular ministry that was prearranged. And so we went over there looking for ministries to engage with, and I decided to treat ministry a little bit like private equity. So what I did is invested a little bit of time, a little bit of money in 10 different small ones, tried to incubate them a little bit and see which ones you could bring to scale. And I looked for ministries that had four criteria. First of all, ones that were involved in evangelism. Secondly, ones that were involved in poverty. Third, ones that were run by indigenous people. I thought if you get involved in UNICEF or World Vision, they probably don't really don't need leadership because they've got a robust thing. But looking for the little uh, ninjas that are kind of really escape, but they don't have the, the background to scale, that's what I was kind of looking for. And fourth thing is I was looking for places that were accessible to my family and friends because I th thought this was not going to happen with just me. I wanted to bring people there. So I didn't want to fly to Jakarta, get on a bus and go nine hours to get there because you, know, you might do that once, but you're not going to do that very often. But there are a lot of places in Asia where you can fly and you can be there reasonably quickly. So those were the four criteria that I was sifting at. And, and, um, and 
it was kind of exactly what we thought. The things we did in Thailand, they just fell over. They, they, you know, there was a series, several of the things just didn't work at all. There were some things that were a little bit sideways investments, what we did with special needs children uh, in China, and we did some things with uh, street, street children in Indonesia. After 10 years, good, solid ministry, but still handing handling the same couple hundred children that they were doing at the beginning. No passion for the millions of children that were not yet there. It just wasn't the way God wired them up. And so for me, God wired me for scale, and so I kind of stepped away from that. Able to found two charities in Hong Kong that have become quite large. Um, there's one called Friends of Hong Kong Charities that uh, is a uh, there's some tax issues, but we've been able to process about 100 million U.S. dollars of donations to benefit about 80 charities in Hong Kong. And then the other one is called Asian Charity Services, and we provide McKenzie-style advice for charities for free on board governance, on strategic direction. And we've provided quite intense guidance, uh, one at a time, to more than 1,000 charities in Hong Kong. So 1,000 charities in one city has kind of gotten to be big. Those two charities um, I was able to found. I'm still the chairman of the board, but I was able to find somebody else to be the CEO. So it doesn't really concern that much of my time. The thing that really consumed my time is when, um, these, when we started to learn about these particular ministry in the Philippines. And, uh, and uh, so they, uh, when this lady came to our church, she started telling the story. It was all over the map. I really wasn't sure by the end of her story what was going on, but, but she told some stories of enormous suffering and enormously clear that God was at work in that. And I said, well, that's the sort of thing that we want to explore. And so we started getting more and more involved in that. And at the time of the the budget of the organization was about $50,000. And I had a few friends of mine that had a similar vision, and they were also senior guys in business. And so we started going back and forth and saying, and over the next few years, we got them from 50000 to about a million U.S. dollars a year. Um, and it was just from our own care group. Uh, we just had our own hands in our own pockets. We thought, we're not going to ask our friends for money until we kind of got scaled. Again, like private equity, you know? Some guy comes into your office and says, I got a great idea, and you know, what do you want to do? Have you mortgaged your house yet? You know, that's what you want to do, right? Do you have equity in the game? And we were kind of taking that same sort of approach with ministry. So we're not going to talk to other people. So at any rate, we did that with our care group. It was very expensive to be a member of our care group back then. But, uh, but it was a great, uh, it was a great, great, great experience. And um, so, uh, and, and over time, then the ministry has kind of continued to grow. Um, the, the total budget now is approaching 20 million U.S. dollars. We, uh, are spending almost two million U.S. dollars a month, month after month, and trying to kind of keep that going is not a small task. We are now the largest charity in the country of the Philippines. It's the 12th most populated country in the world to be there. So God's really done a lot of things for this. Uh, just briefly, it's not what I'm talking about today, just tell you what we think the characteristics are of the ministry we're involved in. There's four things. First of all, we're focused. That's the first thing. We are focused exclusively on people that are in ultra poverty. Um, the, the level of poverty around the world is about $3.20 a day. Then there's a level called extreme poverty, which is $1.90 a day. And the United Nations says that is a level, extreme poverty is a level that threatens your survival. That's $1.90. We work with people that earn 50 cents a day, a quarter of the extreme poverty. So these are very, very, very poor people that are in tremendous, uh, tremendous need. And uh, about 7 million Filipinos live in ultra poverty. Second thing, we feel that we're effective. We work with Yale people in order to comprehensively measure the impact of our programs. We've been featured in Freakonomics podcast. 
uh, God's just opened a lot of doors for us. Um, and this trans so we developed this four-month transform program. A local pastor invites the 30 poorest people in his community in for once-a-week training in values, health, and livelihood. It lasts for four months. At the end of that four months, the average ultra-poor family increases their household income by 167%. We see serious illness down by 29%. Chronic hunger goes down by 19% and scores of other life improvements. And we've also seen dramatic spiritual uh, success. The number of people who attend an ICM church increased from 33% before to 87% of the population after. Afterwards, uh, number of people who said they attend a Bible study goes from 28 to 53 percent. The number of say they accepted Jesus in the last two years increased from 24 to 35 percent. So, lots more to say about that, obviously, but just to give you a feel. The third thing is we're efficient. We uh, have been diligent about keeping the costs under control because every dollar that is saved is one more person that can be helped. That's the goal, right? And so we've been able to do, deliver this four-month program fully loaded for $10 per person. That's not $10 a month or $10 a year. It is $10 period we can take a person through a four-month program with all of the bells and whistles of the program. And uh, the last thing is... Uh, number four is scale, and this is the important thing. You will hear a lot of ministries that will tell you great stories of how they've helped a few people. We have now taken 1.5 million people through that program. So doing anything at scale is something that is different. So we right now are working with 10,000 churches, and we've been able to mobilize this army of God, the hands and feet of God, to help the poorest people in their community. And it's been a great privilege to be involved in this ministry, focused, effective, efficient, scale. Um, listen, I love my tax job at Morgan Stanley. I had, uh, I feel that most of us on this world strive for two things. We strive for account for autonomy. We want no one to tell us what to do. And second, we want responsibility. We want to do something very important. But you know, those two are inversely correlated. The more senior you get in an organization, the less autonomy you have. Everybody thinks you know what they know what you're doing. But it, when I was running tax, I had both of those things because I was managing a billion dollars a year of tax expense and no one bothered me because no one thought they knew what I was doing. So I had like the greatest job ever. But um, the CFO of Morgan Stanley, the global one, didn't understand that because she thought I should keep rising up to that. And I thought if I go up a level, then everybody's going to think they know how to do my job. And uh, But she basically eventually made, the, made it clear to me that if I didn't want to become CFO in Asia, that you know, I wouldn't be long for this company. So uh, at any rate, so at any rate, I, I eventually in 2009, the firm asked me to become Asia CFO. And, um, and so when that happened, I really felt like I was kind of going above the tree line here. Uh, no one lives in the C-suite very long or not very many people. And so I said to my wife, I went from having a career at Morgan Stanley to a season at Morgan Stanley. And I said that when I started it. And that's pretty well what happened. Um, during my uh, th the next three years, uh, there was only three of us in the C-suite there in Asia. And I went through four CEOs and I went through three uh, COOs. And so it wasn't very long till I was the longest serving person in that, in that floor by a long country mile. And things were going well. In December of 2012, I came to New York down in Times Square and I was going to talk to my big boss and I had a list of 12 things and I only had 30 minutes and, and I thought I can't go in and talk to this guy about 12 things in 30 minutes but I looked at the list I got to do all of it so I went in took a deep breath and I said I got things to do he said wait just before you start just want to let you know we've decided we don't need the position of CFO in Asia anymore any questions that started at 2 p.m. At 2.10 p.m., I was back in my hotel room at the W Hotel across the street in Times Square, and my career was over. 
after 17 years. And, you know, listen, during those, those tough times in 2008, 9, 10, you know, we had to let go a lot of people. And I don't even disagree necessarily with the decision they made to, that, you know, I was getting paid twice as much as my number two, and they eventually gave my role to him. I don't disagree with any of that. The thing that frustrated me is I was surprised. I didn't actually, I thought that wasn't going to happen. And I got to tell you, they didn't really talk to many people in Asia. When they went back and they said, and people in Asia found out that I was leaving the firm, they said, okay, then this is the end of the company. Because they thought I was going to be the last guy on the boat, right? So, um, but at any rate, um, went during that short walk across the street from the Morgan Stanley office to the W Hotel, which is literally 10 paces, um, I felt that God was whispering to me. He said, I will take care of you. And, um, and I think it's been a big commitment for me. I, uh, fortunately for my self-image, Goldman Sachs called me within a week and said they wanted to move. And so I had a series of other options. So unlike, I'm sure many, many of you have been through the same experience, have had this big trauma. I actually was able to kind of keep my self-image a little bit in the sense that I had other people that, that calling me. So I didn't feel like I was, uh, I was thrown away. But having said that, I felt that God was calling me at this point to actually devote my time to ministry in a more, more concentrated way. And so, um, and so it's been a big commitment for me. I walked away from business at the height of my income producing years. Uh, during my last year as Morgan Stanley CFO, I crossed the ocean between Hong Kong and Manila 40 times while I was for ministry, but that was while I was working as CFO. And, I, and as I've joined ICM, I know this sounds weird, but I feel that running ICM requires more complexity than managing Morgan Stanley's business. I, a lot of reasons to explain that, but it has been really, really challenging. But it has been worth it. God's blessed me and my family, and it's given me great satisfaction to see so much life change. At ICM, we are trying to change the face of poverty in large sections of the Philippines, do it all with the local church in a way that brings honor and glory to God and to uh, you know, uh, those in heaven. And I find as I talk to people, business things, uh, so many people are a little bit jealous of who I am. They feel like, wouldn't it be great if I had the opportunity to give back a little bit, you know? And I say, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, let's just check checkbooks and see how, you know, what what's in what's involved here. But having said that, God has been very, very um, uh, gracious to me and has honored, uh, has has been has been, uh, uh, you know, has, has given me a, a very full life, and I am very, very, very grateful. So. I don't know if all of that is helpful for you, but those are some of the ways that God brought me, kind of covered a lot of things in short time, but perhaps a little bit something along the way of that journey may have may click with you a little bit. So um, just want to say thank you very much for the time to spend with you this morning. It's been a great honor, and uh, I can tell that God's at work here. So thank you very much.